I want to want to address all the moms in the room, uh, all the current mothers. Uh, uh, we praise God for you. Uh, we love you. Happy Mother's Day, uh, fellas. Tell your tell your mom Happy Mother's Day today. Uh, if if I, I was asking a guy this week, I said, uh, even if she's not your mom, if she's the, she bears your children, you should probably do something for her. I was talking to a brother today. I said, "What are you gonna do for your wife?" I know he has kids uh, with his wife. Uh, <laughs> he looked at me, dead face, said, "She ain't my mom." I don't recommend that, brothers. I don't recommend that. Uh, so, so happy Mother's Day. I also want to uh, address all the all the women in the room who, uh, for whatever reason, maybe struggling with infertility or have in the past. Uh, God sees you. He sees you. He loves you. And finally, just all the, all the grieving moms in the room, those who have had to say goodbye to their children too early, he sees you still, and he loves you. With that, I want to get into the text this morning in just a, in just a minute. This morning, we're, we're hitting pause uh, on our sermon series in Mark, uh, which if, if you've come here often, you'll know that our typical way of preaching is to, to pick the scriptures up wherever we left off the previous Sunday. Uh, which for us last week would have been Mark chapter 10. However, as the pastor of this church, I'm always thinking about, about you, the members of this congregation, putting myself in your shoes to try to see the world the way you see the world, how you see things that are happening in our day. And I do this primarily to help me think and to know and to discern what areas of preaching may be beneficial for you and for the body of Christ here in our local context. So there's a few things at play this week. I don't know if you've been paying much attention. Uh, and there's a few things that w- this week that has caused me to hit pause on the sermon series in Mark. Uh, just one week here. Uh, and we'll pick it up again next week. In order that I might address and help you in your holy faith. That's my job as pastor here. The first is it's Mother's Day. Uh, now, if we ignore for a few moments the cheesiness of our culture's interpretation of Mother's Day, what we find is a good and beautiful thing. Today, set aside to honor our mothers and the mothers of, uh, uh, around us. You see, the culture may not realize what they're doing, but what, what they're actually doing is, is biblical. It comes from the scriptures. You see, it was, uh, it was uh, the, the, the fifth commandment, honor your mother and your father, uh, that it may go well with you. So, so, so knowing this and uh, knowing that many of you today will be reflecting on, on your own mother's, or, or on the fact that you are a mother, or as you wade through the pain of barrenness, or as you grieve the loss of a child, I want to pause our journey from Mark. The second reason is, is the leaked Supreme Court document. I don't know if you've read this or, or not, but here's some exciting things. It seems as if the courts will overrule Roe versus Wade. And this is exciting times brothers and sisters. So this has caused many people either great delight or great devastation this week. So I want to engage in this cultural moment to help us think and understand how we should think biblically about the day in which we live. So my sermon title this morning is The Joy of Motherhood and the Sorrow of Abortion. And I hope in this morning's message, what I hope to do is to ground us in the scriptures on these two colossal realities, that there is great joy in motherhood and that there is great sorrow 
and abortion. So as you're flipping to Luke chapter 1, let me, let me pray, because we need the Holy Spirit this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have something we can put our hope in that's uh, not tied to, uh, to time or to whatever the culture may think at this moment, but it is, it is uh, secured in the councils of heaven. For the Lord sits in the heaven and he does what he pleases. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the word of the revelation that's given to us so that we may uh, peer into these great truths. And so, Father, we pray this morning as we wade through some difficult things that we would understand you, that we would understand ourselves, and that you would drive us to be more Christ-like in all areas of our life. Lord, we need you to do this. But my words alone are, are nothing. They're simply words. Father, it's through preaching that you change hearts by the Holy Spirit. So we ask that the heart will be changed this morning through the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 1, if, if you're there, let me, uh, let me set the stage. The text for this morning is uh, verse 39 to 45. But before we get there, I want to kind of ground us in what's going on here. So in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses four through, 1 through 4, Luke opens his gospel by letting us know what, he's, what he plans to accomplish in the scriptures. Uh, so look at Luke 1, 1 there. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as though who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke here tells us exactly why he's writing. You see, oftentimes, in order to understand the scriptures, we should try to figure out why they were wrote in the first place. So if you uh, take the gospel according to John, for example, he doesn't tell you why he wrote the book until the end. Anybody know what that reason is? He says there at the end of a John, he says, I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's come to save the world. Luke gives it to us on the front end here. He says, I'm writing this entire account so that we, you and I, sitting here today, but Theophilus originally, uh, would know that what he's been taught to believe, what he believes about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, what we believe about God, is true. That it's true. That's why he's writing. He's like, I want to write so that you know from the eyewitness accounts that what you've actually been taught is actually true. This isn't just the stuff of Sunday school mornings. This is ultimate reality. And then in verses 5 through 25, we get this interesting account of the promise of the birth of John the Baptist. We're given the story of, of an angel visiting a, a man named Zechariah. Look at verse 11. I'm not going to read all of this here, but look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah is in the temple. He's doing his priestly duties, and here an angel shows up. And in verse 12, And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have, great, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even... From his mother's womb. So we have this angel shows up uh, and he says, You're going to have a son, baby boy. 
But not only that, this is, this is, this is fantastic news, Zechariah. You see, there's one reason why this, this news was so spectacular, so, so wonderful, so great. You see, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth had no children. Look at verse 6. And they were there. Uh, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Notice these contrasting verses here. You can tell that by the opening of verse 7, where he says, but... But they had no children. Both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And these people were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but, but what the scriptures do tell us is that they walked blamelessly before God. Like these were the people that you would call good people. Like these, were the, these are the people you wanted. These are good folk, as we used to say down in southern Ohio. But the contrasting part is that they had no children. Luke goes farther to tell us why. It wasn't because they didn't want children or hadn't tried. But it was because Elizabeth couldn't have children. She was barren. She's been unable to produce children from her womb. But here the angel is with this great news. Hey, you're going to bear a child. This story no doubt echoes the story of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, who were also advanced in years. They, were, they weren't old, but they were older. See, I've learned how to talk around some old folk. Uh, and as God promised them a child, and, and God kept that word to Abraham and Sarah, so now God would do for Zechariah and Elizabeth what he's promised, a child. Then in verses 26 through 38, we have the promise of the birth of Christ. This next section uh, opening of Luke's gospel is the promise of the birth of Jesus. You see, in similar fashion, an angel shows up. Only this time, instead of showing up in the temple to a man, he shows up to the woman, to Mary. And instead of an older lady, it's a younger lady. And not only that, but this young woman is indeed a virgin. Look at this. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel what you and I would say to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? See, both of these accounts are miraculous. That is, that, that God is intervening into the natural order, the natural working of natural law, and causing something to happen. With the one, she's well past the age of childbearing. And with the other, she has never known a man. So after explaining to Mary that God himself will overshadow her, thus the child will bear, she will bear, will be called holy, son of God. He explains in verse 36 about Elizabeth. Look at it. It says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So this brings us to our text this morning, 39 through 45. This was read this morning, but let's read it again now that you have it in front of you, looking at the words. Look at what the word says. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. 
And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Luke here, after explaining why he is writing the book, and detailing two individual separate accounts of an angel showing up at the promise of the birth of a son, Luke now brings these accounts together by detailing for us how these two women whom God has given a miracle finally come together. Notice this logical process that Luke gives us here. Remember, he told us in verse 3 that he wants to give an orderly account, like this is the way things went down. In verse 40, we have Mary greeting Elizabeth. It is this greeting that then kicks off the next five verses. This greeting led to verse 41, where Elizabeth hears the greeting. And all of a sudden, this baby in her womb leaps. This in and of itself is not miraculous. Like, I I fathered three children. Some of you have fathered more. Some of you less. In every one of these children, every one of these pregnancies, there's been the moment in the pregnancy when my wife looks at me and says, hey, 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 come here, come here. Put your hand on my stomach. By the way, if a woman doesn't ask you to put your hand on her stomach, don't do it. Don't, I've, been, I've been through this three times. Just, just wait till they invite you. Every time she says, did you feel that? And every time I said, feel what? She says, that, right there. The baby is pushing his foot out or its hand. I don't know. And after a few minutes, my hand is calm enough to pick up the sensation that Julie has been describing this whole time. There have been times when we have been sitting and talking after a long day, and Julie says, the baby hears your voice, and all of a sudden is more active, more alert, more awake, more moving. So this baby of Elizabeth, hearing the greeting of Mary and leaping in the womb is not in and of itself miraculous. But notice the next part is. Look at it. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby leaps in her womb. And now Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Because Elizabeth is about to add a small detail that verse 41 doesn't contain. You see in verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, as women do, to Mary, that she is blessed among women. Even the fruit of her womb is blessed. Then in verse 43, she gets around to asking the question, why am I so lucky? Like, like what is it about me that the mother of my Lord should visit me? Now we'll come back to that title she gives Mary in just a moment. But I want you to see Elizabeth's explanation of what has just occurred. Look at verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Do you see it? The fact that the baby is jumping in the womb is not what is special. Millions of babies leap in the womb. Almost all pregnant women can feel the baby moving in the womb between 16 to 24 weeks, according to Google. What is important about this event is the reason why this baby is leaping in this womb for joy. You see, when Mary says hello to Elizabeth, this preborn baby jumped because he knew he was in the presence of greatness. This preborn baby was filled with joy and could not contain it any longer, and so he jumps inside Elizabeth's womb. This is incredible. This is glorious. This is joyous. 
You see, Elizabeth then says that Mary is again blessed because she believed what the Lord has told her, that she would deliver the eternal king, the one who would inherit the throne of David, would rule a kingdom without end. Now here is how we know she's addressing Mary in this last verse. Look back at verse 36. Behold, this is the angel talking to to Mary. Your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm your servant, servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. So the angel says, Your relative, Elizabeth, you know her, the one who can't have kids, infertile, has all kinds of problems. She's pregnant. Mary hears this and quickly goes to visit. She wants to see if it's true, you see. She wants to know if what the angel has said is true. She's searching for truth, and so she travels to see Elizabeth. And this is actually what ignites this whole passage. So this morning, I want to observe, have two observations from this text, and then we'll get out of here. Number one, it is a blessing to be a mother. It's a blessing to be a mother. Number two, babies are humans and should be protected from the moment of conception. So first, it's a blessing to be a mother. Now women, I know that our culture has fought against this truth with an aggressiveness that is almost unmatched in all other areas of life. As a matter of fact, much of our culture would tell me I actually myself have no right to say what I just said. That I would have no right to tell a woman that one of the highest callings a woman can have is to be a mother. They would say that this is a way to keep the patriarchy, or this is a tool of old men to control women, to assert dominance and power over women. This is what our culture says. You breathe this in every day, whether you realize it or not. Let me give you an example of how crazy the world has become. On Friday afternoon, I was on the social media platform called LinkedIn. I don't know if You've heard of this. This is a social media platform uh, for for professionals, for those in the workforce. You can share about your job promotions or or business problems or business solutions. And then people can follow and interact and comment and like and dislike, all kinds of it. So on Friday afternoon, I'm about to wrap up for work. I see a post about a man sharing that he and his wife were happy, elated, ecstatic, joy-filled to share that his wife was leaving her full-time job to be a stay-at-home mom to their young children. They were excited. And they wanted to share this excitement with those around them, those in their social media feed. However, most of the comments on that feed were something like this. How dare you? How sexist are you? Most of the posts were about how sexist this man was for letting his wife leave her job, sacrifice her career in order to love and nurture their children. You see, these people were calling for the man to leave his job, even if he made more money, even if he had a more stable job, in order that his wife might have a sense of satisfaction with her career. Now look right at me. Our culture believes that you will be more satisfied in your career than in your role as a mother. They believe this. And I'm here to tell you, women, as a man and as your pastor, that's a lie. 
Listen to me. We, 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 I tell this to men all the time. The scriptures are clear. We cannot find our ultimate satisfaction in our jobs. The scriptures could not be more clear that being a mother is a higher calling than nearly every other role a woman can have. And look, I give the same counsel to men. Like I said, like if you quit your job next week, within a month, your company would have replaced you. In a year, they may still talk about you like, remember how that guy always screwed stuff up? Because you know once you leave, you're the guy who created all the problems, and it's your fault. In five years, you will not even be a footnote in your company's memory, men or women. Right? I actively tell men, other brothers around me, all the time, don't make an idol out of your job. And what we are seeing is the fact that women are actively being encouraged to make an idol out of production. Women, one of your greatest roles is that of mother. Now let's look back at the text. I don't even, I'm not just making this stuff up. Look at verse 42. Elizabeth talking to Mary. She exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Notice, notice what Elizabeth's saying here. Blessed are you. Like, like you are blessed. Now, Mary's role as blessing in this text is a particular blessing, right? Like, like she was blessed among women, like more than all the other women. But her blessing, like that of Elizabeth who is standing there with her, was a general blessing given only to women. That of being able to produce new life. This is one of the repeated truths throughout Scripture. Psalm 127, 3-5 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. That's the same language there, fruit of the womb. So this blessing that, that Mary is blessed in and carrying a child is particular because she's carrying the Savior of the world. But it's also general in the sense that she's been given a child. Verse 4, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Like, how countercultural is this? In a world which says we should probably have less children, or, or, or why would you have more than one? How selfish of you. The scriptures speak directly contrary to our culture's point of view. As a matter of fact, any time a woman's womb was shut in the scriptures, it was considered quite a big deal. That's why Luke contrasted the faithfulness of Elizabeth with Elizabeth's infertility. You see, the great hope of mankind was the promise of a baby, of a seed, Genesis chapter 3. And it was given to Eve, a woman. It was to be a son of Eve that would make all things right to fix the brokenness of the world. Women, look at me. You are made in the image of God. Because I don't want you to hear me say, well, I'm only valuable if I produce children. Because that's also what the culture will say, I'm telling you. Listen, listen. You were made in the image of God. You are loved by God right now. Children or not, you have worth and dignity because of the image of the one you bear. Not because of how much money you do or don't make in the marketplace. When you hear me say that, because the world is measuring your dignity right now, 
based upon your dominance and aggression in the free market economy. And I'm telling you, you will not find value there. This is a road that leads to destruction. You see, we as Christians, we need to regain the understanding that women who choose to stay home, nurture children, are not lesser women than those who go to work. They are not less valuable. They are not more unworthy. You see, the role of a mother is a high calling that should be praised. It's a blessing to be a mother. And it is a role that, listen, in all of our talk about equality and fairness, it's a role that can only be filled by women. By women. Number two, babies are humans and should be protected from the moment of conception. Right? Second observation from the text here. Words are important. And the way we use words often define the way we see reality. Notice I didn't say words define right reality. Like there's one reality and we all live in it. But often our words can, can, can color the way in which we see the world. Now let's look at the word of God this morning and the words he has given us. Look at verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Question, was it a fetus that leaped in her womb? No, it was a baby. This baby leaped in her womb. Now, question, how, how old is this baby? Does anybody know? Six months. You said, making that up, Pastor? No, 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 it's in the, it's in the text. This can be, we, can, we can draw this out of the text from two scriptures. Verse first is, is, is the angel visits Zechariah, and then an angel visits Mary. But before the angel visits Mary, there's a span of time that elapses. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Six months has passed between these two events that, that Luke is telling us. These two angelic encounters, two months or six months has passed. This is why Mary rushed to see Elizabeth, right? It doesn't make sense if, if, if the angel appears at both times. Why would, why would Mary rush to see Elizabeth if, like, if you can't even tell you're pregnant until two or three months in? That's why Mary rushed to see Elizabeth. She wanted to know if this was true, what the angel had said is true. Now look at verse 56. And Mary remained there with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came, verse 57, for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. So six months between the angel visits. Mary goes, visits Elizabeth, remains there about three months. And then returns home. And then Elizabeth gives birth. Therefore, we know that Elizabeth was most likely at or near six months pregnant. Now notice the implications of this. At six months in the womb, baby boy John is leaping for joy because he knows that he's in the presence of greatness. Now if we only focus on John here, we, we kind of miss the bigger story. The bigger implication, which is, at this point... How far along is Mary? When Mary visits Elizabeth, how pregnant is she? One week? Three weeks? Five weeks? You see, the text does not say with great clarity. But it does say that she quickly makes her way to the town where Elizabeth is. So the baby in her womb, is it merely a clump of tissues? 
Is that why baby boy John was jumping in the womb? No. Fully human. And yet fully God. So the implications of preborn baby boy John leaping in the womb of Elizabeth is that he recognized that the baby in Mary, one to four weeks probably in gestation, is human. Notice also Elizabeth's recognition of the baby in Mary's womb. Verse 42, she says that the baby is blessed. Not only does she recognize Mary's pregnancy as being a human, she also realizes that the baby in Mary's womb is also her Lord. In verse 43, she calls Mary the mother of my Lord. You see, babies are human from the moment of conception and should be protected. But if we're being honest, we already know that. Christians, non-Christians alike, know this. In 2013, John Piper wrote an article called, We Know They Are Killing Children. All of us know. In it, he gave 11 reasons that we know they are killing children. Let me quickly give you six of them. He said, number one, anecdotally, abortionists will admit they are killing children. Mary Elizabeth Williams wrote an article near the same time, January 23rd, 2013. Here's what she said. Wildly pro-choice, thinks women should be able to abort anytime they want. Here's what she said. And the, the title of her article is, So What If Abortion Ends Life? Here's what she says. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that what a fetus is, that's what a fetus is, a, a human life. And that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Now think about that. How wicked, how depraved. Here's what she says. She says, absolutely, it's a, it's a person. It's a human. And yet I'm not wavered by one little mark away from this belief that it is the woman's right to choose whether or not to terminate the life of this baby. You know what her rationale was? Here it was. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. Listen to this. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet, a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life and what is right for her circumstances and her death should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her always. We, we know we're killing children. They admit that they're killing children. Number two, states will treat the killing of the unborn as a homicide. Most states treat the killing of an unborn child as a form of homicide. This is what they call fetal homicide laws. You see, it's illegal to take the life of the unborn if the mother wants the baby, but it is legal to take the life of the unborn if she doesn't. In the first case, the law treats the fetus as a human with rights. In the second case, the law treats the fetus as non-human with no rights. Listen, we know what we're doing. Number three, fetal surgery treats the unborn as children and patients. Listen, you can be at the same hospital and get an abortion of a 20-week-old baby and in the next room there might be a doctor trying to a life-saving procedure 
on a 20-week-old baby. It's lunacy. Number four, being dependent on mommy does not disqualify person. And listen, like, like carry this logic out. We consider persons on respirators or dialysis to be full humans. The unborn cannot be disqualified from human personhood because they are dependent on their mother for food and oxygen. In fact, we operate on the exact opposite principle. The more dependent someone is on us, the more responsibility we feel to protect them. Not the less. We know what we're doing. Number five, all the organs are present at eight weeks of gestation. All of them. The brain is functioning. The heart pumping. The liver making blood cells. The kidney cleaning the fluids. The fingers have fingerprints unique to their own. Yet almost all abortions happen later than this date. Finally, the last one from this article. We have seen the photographs. You see, the marvel of ultrasound has given a stunning window into the womb that shows the unborn, for example, at eight weeks, sucking his thumb, recoiling from pricking because it's painful, responding to sound. And we murder them all the day long. Listen, it's been said, and I'll say it again. Listen, abortion is murder, and it's wicked. And we should not be afraid to stand up and say so. Like, you should read the procedures and how they're described and how they're done of abortions. Read how the doctors, as they rip the life from the womb, how they must lay out the body parts in a pan in order to make sure that they got them all. In order that there's no human fragments remaining. Or read of how the procedures describe the sensation of a skull being crushed with forceps for extraction. Let your stomach turn as you read. Let the tears well up in your eyes as they did mine. Abortion is murder. Now, there's a world of objections out there. We've seen them this week. Let me just give you two common themes and how to think about them, and then we'll close. Oftentimes, the most common one is, Pastor, what do you think about cases of rape or when the life of the mother is in danger? These are the two most common rebuttals to outlawing abortion and overturning Roe versus Wade. According to the latest data available, which is 2019 and 2020, these two cases make up less than a quarter of a percent. 0.25% of all abortions are performed for these reasons. This is an emotionally charged argument that tries to skirt the issue at hand, which is we are killing millions and millions of babies not because of rape, but because of convenience. The second common theme is, Pastor, you can't regulate your morality over us. To which I say, all laws are moral. All laws 
are moral laws. Don't let the culture hoodwink you into thinking that it's not. Like, think about it. The government tells you what to do with your body all the time. For example, try to drive home today without a seatbelt, pass the cop, going 20 over. What do you think is going to happen? You're going to get a ticket. One of our brothers in the church may be the one to give you the ticket. So he said to me in conversation privately that I'll share with you openly, as I asked, how fast can I go without getting pulled over? <laughs> to which he said, nine, you're fine, ten, you're mine. So there it is. There it is. There it is. That's what he said. They'll give you a ticket. Why? Because the government tells you what to do with your body all the time. Try running down the street naked when you get home. You'll get locked up. Use certain words in public, and you'll be charged with a hate crime. Why? Because all laws are moral laws, and all laws are regulating some form of morality. The question we should be asking is, whose morality are we regulating? By which standard should we regulate these morals? Secondly to this, we need to understand what it means to have a distinctly Christian perspective in an unbelieving culture. You see, the unbelieving world hates God. The unbelieving world hates the gospel. They hate Jesus. They hate the cross. They hate that we're all the time telling them to stop killing babies. Does this mean that we should simply abandon them and say, well, you know, they, they told me to sit down and be quiet. No! Listen, we are often against the world for the sake of the world. This has been the case of most social changes throughout the church's history. It is the scriptures that ultimately gave worth and dignity and value to women, which led to the women's suffrage movement. It is the scriptures that ultimately gave worth and dignity and value to people of color, which led to the abolition of slavery. It is the scriptures that ultimately give worth and dignity and value to the unborn, which will one day lead to the end of abortion. All laws are moral laws. There's a reason so many hospitals bear Christian names. Just think about Dublin Methodist. Or, or, or Mount Carmel, St. Anne's, right? It's because the roots of modern hospitals was carried on the backs of the church. It was men and women like you in this room who took seriously the call to love their neighbors. I want to be pastorally because statistics will tell us that one in four women have had an abortion. In a room this size with the amount of women we have, no doubt there may be, you have had an abortion. And I just said abortion's murder, so what do we do now, Pastor? Listen, there is no sin that God cannot forgive. Take, for example, Paul. This joker would roll up on people's houses, rip them from their homes, and kill them in the street. Murder the church daily. 
As a matter of fact, is when he got saved, when Christ ripped him from this path, from the path that he was on, he was actually on his way to deliver more execution orders. And so Paul, who daily was murdering brothers and sisters in Christ, God lovingly saved him. God can lovingly do that for you. So what, what do we do, Pastor? How do we, how do we land the plane? Two things. One, we need to repent. Pastor, I've never had an abortion. Pro-life all the way. No, no, no. We, we need to repent for all the areas we've pled ignorance all the while knowing the babies were being murdered. We need to repent of all the times we've silently shrank back from a culture that says, leave your God at home. We need to repent. And secondly, in closing, we need to pray. Like it is monumental what's happening in these days. Pray, think about it. No other Supreme Court decision has ever been leaked early ever, except now. Why do you think that is? I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but are there people out there who hate the gospel? Absolutely. Are there people out there profiting off murder daily? Absolutely. And so we need to pray. Because overturning Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey doesn't automatically stop the culture of death in our society. As a matter of fact, it simply hands the the, the authority back to the states. And so there will be work to do regardless of the decision that comes out next month or in the weeks to come. And so we should pray. Because we are people of prayer who believe that God moves and intervenes in the course of history by the outcry of his people. Remember, Moses on the backside of the desert. What did God say to him? said, I've heard the cry of my people in slavery. Go set them free. And when we were, were, were crying out, when we were bound by sin, he sent Jesus to rescue us from a greater slavery. And so we pray. And we work. And we wrap our arms around mothers who are expecting unsure of whether to keep the baby or not. We give our time, we give our energy, we give our finances to push back the darkness around us. Let's pray. Father God, we live in wild times. And yet we know that you are unshaken, unmoved, and that you are currently, right now, ruling and reigning. And so we should not have fear when we speak up. We should not shrink back from crying out in the public or in private. Lord, we pray that you would help us with this. The gospel would be the motivation for this. Lord, this is not an easy path you've called us to walk, and yet we believe 
from the clear reading of Scripture that this is the path you call all of us to in one form or another. It's what it means to be Christian living in an unbelieving society. Oh, we know that Christ is Lord, has been, before time began, will be after time ends. So, Father, may we walk this out, not just in church, not just in our words, but in our actions. And may we be grace-filled. May we, may we operate out of a, have a deep sense of love for the dying world around us. May we give them you. You who do not want to see any perish, but all to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we fill our days with this mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.